This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 13 of Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. Today we'll be discussing Addiction as Trauma's Shadow, Understanding and Managing Addiction and its Relationship to Trauma. Today I'm privileged to have with me my guest, Dr. Bruce Lachter, who is a psychiatrist with more than 20 years of experience in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. A former journalist, his novel A Break in the Wall chronicles the demise of a psychiatrist in a prison setting. He says it's a bold satire of contemporary psychiatry, which is badly in need of bold satire. Bruce's current roles include teaching psychotherapy to registrars, training in psychiatry at the Northern Beaches Hospital in Sydney, teaching psychiatric interview technique to medical students at the University of Notre Dame, also in Sydney, supervising the therapy team at South Pacific Private Hospital, where he also has inpatients under his care. But his main professional role has always been in private practice, now in the city applying psychoanalytic psychotherapy to help people with various presentations and conditions. Bruce, we've known each other for quite a while now, must be about 15 years. That's about right. You know, Amanda, it could be longer. It could be. So I've referred some patients to you over the years where I felt they needed a psychiatrist rather than a psychologist. And people often ask me, what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? What's your response to this? A couple of responses arise that psychiatrist has done a medical degree and that obviously opens up the privilege of being able to prescribe medications for patients. But the other response, in a lot of my day-to-day work, depending on the psychologist's own training, they could certainly be doing the same as what I'm doing in my therapy work. So in a way, there's a certain sort of convergence at some point and certainly I've been trained by some excellent psychologists in supervision myself. It's interesting that overlap, I think, is what confuses people. And I think it's often, I find it's often very complimentary that I don't have that medical background. And so I'm so intrigued when I hear your take on certain clients and things from that more medical, scientific, different scientific kind of context as well. Yeah, look, Amanda, I'll throw in a little buzzword that current much reading really is pluralism. I think a healthy system is going to be open to different perspectives. And you and I both know we've had dealings with excellent social workers that are working in therapy modes as well. So you've got kind of ways that people can cover the bases depending on their own training and perhaps arrive at some pretty similar views that also allow for pluralism. My favourite note from the students on different levels is no one has all the answers. Love it. Yep. And the good old multidisciplinary team that we used to talk about. You know, that was one of the real joys of working in the public hospital system for many years was always working with a team and, you know, particularly with the most dispersed patients. Literally at the very pointy end of socioeconomic and psychological struggles, you need a team. You're not going to be able to help a lot of those people in a sort of office-based solo practice approach. Absolutely. And with your public health experience, you bring a lot to the table. You've been in private practice for, you know, as you say, over 20 years, treating all kinds of problems. What made you specialise in addictions? 
the way I sort of fell into it about 10 years ago when a lovely fellow, uh, Ben Teo, sort of invited me along to South Pacific, really. I, I've come and gone since then, but I'm back there now. And South Pacific private hospital on the northern beaches in Sydney has had a history of treating people with addiction. So that's where that, that sort of interest has developed. And once again, being an inpatient unit, you know, it, it's bound to the team approach, particularly online group therapy. And you mentioned this inpatient process. What is that process? When things go well, you've got... The reason I put it like that, you've, the, the sort of typical patient only has three weeks of inpatient. Not a long time. It's possibly, I could say generically, typically isn't enough time, but we'll work with what we've got. So in that three weeks, you can expect someone will be taken through an initial detox if that's what's needed, depending on the uh, actual addiction. Although, funnily enough, even gambling had a, a so-called a detox as well. Might surprise people, people with gambling addiction to go through a period of irritability and dysphoria or low mood. But definitely with alcohol and you know, in particular, that's the, there's a need there for medical detox. And then within that period of emerging from the detox process within a few days, typically there'll be by and large, most of what help happens there is in the group therapy. And what's group therapy involving? Look, it's a sort of a managed, almost introduction or reintroduction into what it is to allow support and trust. There's a lot I could say. That's the simplest way I could put it. I need to show you with a little diagram using my fingers. But imagine this where you've got one hand lower than the other hand, left hand lower than right, if you happen to be right-handed. And, you know, the left hand to the right hand creates a trajectory. That's, that's sort of one-on-one approach. That's the picture of one-on-one where you'll always have a patient sort of analogous to the little child or baby and the parents up higher. It's a sort of inevitable power structure in one-on-one treatment that, as you know, we work to level things out and get to something more democratic. But the beauty of group work, particularly the fellowship, so-called as well as that program, people are in a democratic or equal position alongside each other. Now, they do have their primary therapist, but the group itself allows people to do one thing so crucially. It sets the conditions where the shame can be dissolved because if, it's set, if the conditions are set healthily, then everyone's there seeking help. No one's there to humiliate or criticise or judge anyone else. Is a kind of way that that group possibility will, uh, I reckon, really address the key shame aspects of addictions really effectively. It's, it's quite powerful. A lot of times people are in there with almost pre-existing traits of, of obviously a lot of shame, even just good old-fashioned shyness, reluctance to share their stories, a kind of hatred of being judged, which really amounts to a projected self-loathing, if that's not too technical. And in a group, uh, you see it almost in that first day or so, uh, like a little child entering school, oh, I can actually speak here and I can feel that there's a way that people can sit with me or with what I've been through. It's got to be managed, but that's part of the technique of group psychotherapy, which actually the doctors like myself, we don't run those groups, the primary therapists do that. What a wonderful process. It sounds really nurturing, really safe, well-contained and almost like a little community to re-enter. And you mentioned the word shame, which we know is so important with addictions. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm just going to take a step back, you know, if I convey that nurturing sense. But one step back, we do have a screening process that, you know, there's an assessment phone call and the remark often is, gee, this is a 
hell of a phone call to get him discussed. You think it might be even up to 40 minutes on the phone with one of the intake officers. But you can see what I'm trying to get at is we've got to be careful that we don't promise that this place is for everyone. Some people you could say they're not ready for it or if there's, you know, conditions like broadly speaking psychosis or situations of, you know, edges of violence, then we've got to say it, it just may not be the appropriate place at that time. Yeah. But coming back to Shane, one of my old teachers, Dr. Craig Powell, I, I don't think people will mind me naming various mentors of mine in a favourable way. Craig fought and, and wrote a lot about shame and I think he was drawing on a kind of self-psychology tradition where shame is seen as sort of capturing the whole person. It's a bodily state. The classic shame response, if I could show you one you know, picture of it, I'll, you know, it's a cringe where you, you tuck your head in and you turn your face away and your hands cover your, your head. Yeah. So the shame is a bodily state and I think it's a more primitive emotional intensity or response and the later almost like development or possibly even achievement of guilt. The guilt can often be related to a deed. Oh, well, I'm, I'm guilty because of what I did. The shame will be perhaps related to one's whole being. I'm, I'm ashamed of my very being and who I am. Yep. Now, both of them, shame and guilt, they get a bit of a bad rap. But I, I think we've got to remind ourselves too that they do, you know, I guess form a conscience. If we're given the conditions within which to fulfil some potential for development, then we get, in the end, a workable sense of shame and guilt that becomes a guide for how to live and how to relate. Wow, so it's healthy shame, healthy guilt. Tricky stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Not so binary as we know, there's dimensions and there's massive cultural overlay too. Like the anthropologists are fascinating of there was a book by Susan Hurdy, H-R-D-Y, called Mother Nature, which extraordinary um, descriptions of what would otherwise we'd be cringing in shame, but descriptions of a sort of pervasive history of infanticide in our species. So um, Saturday morning, here we are, Amanda, I'm diving into something about as sort of intense as you can get in our light chats, but <laughs> Susan I mean, this, um, reveals how powerfully cultural all of our influences are. Everything's embedded in culture, including our shame experiences and guilt. So do you find that with vastly different cultures that you have to approach that differently in the group setting? Yeah, look, I, I expect so. As I say, I'm not running the group myself. It's a real challenge, isn't it, to be culturally informed. These days, perhaps the latest culture is, is the trans culture. And, we, you know, it's actually conveyed something of the day-to-day work when such a patient arrives. It's so difficult when there's, you know, the binary male-female toilet designations or room designations and how to find the language to refer to someone as they rather than he or she, if mm. that's fair. So there's another distinctively contemporary kind of cultural aspect that, you know, we've just got to adapt to and be flexible in, even as we're wondering and, and sort of seeking meaning. You know, indeed wondering at what the kinds of quality of shame might be conveying in such a person. Fascinating. We used to have what was known as an intervention process where people might become an inpatient and there was that time in the media where we heard about Nicole Kidman, the, the famous actress and her psychiatrist father who organised apparently an intervention for her now husband Keith Urban early in their marriage. I believe that's no longer used in Australia and I wonder if that's because rehab is more successful if people self-admit to hospital. I'm just going to, I'm sort of grinning, Amanda, because 
there's a little psychiatrist, psychologist question. <laughs> I think Cole Kidman's father, I think he passed away a little while ago. Yeah. I think he was a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. Oh, so, yes, he was. But it, it, it's kind of, you know, it's a funny one, isn't it? But look, the intervention, I guess this culture there, it's probably more of an American kind of notion, broadly, you know. And exactly as you say, I, I wouldn't be a, a great fan of the intervention where, you know, the family almost sort of, the cliche, but, you know, kidnaps the member of the family with an addiction problem and rides them into hospital and forces them into the admission. It, it may uh, make for good Hollywood scenes or novelist kind of dramas, but really it's not going to happen in, in any practical sense to, I think, to good outcomes. Exactly as you say, we do need to have, we set the conditions for someone to be ready to take on the task of recovery, but you know, lead a horse to water, can't make a drink, might sound like a bit of a glib response, but the intervention into the sort of muscular activity and the grabbing hold of and all that, it can go pretty bad, that's one problem. But on the other hand, obviously the intervention of parents or sons or spouses, kids, that's an intervention of, you know, just the, the sorrow within the family, finding deep expression, as well as anger, which we know everyone's got to find ways to manage their anger in these situations, but Fair dinkum, to use a good old local cultural expression, is say, fair dinkum, this is breaking my heart or I can't stand it. Another intervention, Amanda, is a simple one, and to be really bossy about it, cutting off the money supply. Wow. Just being as clear as that. No no more money until we know that, you know, the addiction has resolved or or there's steps towards some healing. The whole world of the practical possibility of limits, when addiction at their very essence, are reaching beyond limits. You know, the, yep. the, the damage coming from lives lived with, without limits or with, without a kind of management frame. Yeah, and I guess like any illness in a family, if one person is ill, the other one steps in usually and takes over. Yeah, this is a thing. Taking over is a fine thing when we need it. There's so many tricky pitfalls in that taking over becomes the mode with which the family functions so that, you know, someone's life is, all, life is always taken over. Well, in a way, that person's going to be rendered or, you know, let's say more likely to become infantilized so they've never had their own task of, you know, setting up a kind of workable responsibility and agency. When we're sick, everyone goes through hardship. could be a psychosocial stress. I can speak personally what a blessing it is to have sisters right beside of me in my family, you know. Yeah. And my little brother as well, he's a, you know, he's a, we all need our support when we're going through whatever it is that's distressing us, setting us. But I think the sense of the limit to that is, is something that the family structure kind of can convey, like, you know, the old sayings like enough's enough or how do we help you find your feet or nudge mm. someone back out into the world when and how they're ready to take things on again. Yeah. And you have a wonderful paper that you presented at the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists at their Faculty of Psychotherapy Conference in Adelaide in 2018, entitled Addiction as Trauma's Shadow, which is fascinating to hear. What do you mean by this? Oh, look, it was a, a paper that sort of came about like through clinical and, I guess, scientific influences, really. It's a pretty old notion, so I possibly just came up with a little bit of poetry in the title, which brings together long-held understanding that the past is in the present. That's, that's what I mean by the shadow. Mm. 
Uh, the shadow is obviously the visual metaphor. I could have said um, addiction is Brahma's echo, perhaps with similar, with similar meaning. So it, it, it tries to create the expectation that, or the understanding that the past is in the present. Now, that's often sounded a bit flaky or you know, spiritual in some ways, cosmic man, but it's, it's just now that science is catching up, the neurobiology is catching up with how that past is actually carried into the present. The studies are really revealing some pathways that that happens. But it's been long-held understanding within more psychotherapeutic approaches. Although, fascinating journey within psychoanalysis itself through an initial acceptance of trauma by Freud and then a kind of turning away from the, if you like, the fact of trauma in what was known as the sort of revision of the seduction theory, I think. I'm, I'm not, I'm no scholar of Freud, but there's been some tremendous work in the last few decades to say, well, wait on, there really is trauma and it certainly matters and it's, you know, it's got to be worked through. The, the, the old idea was that it was all about the subjective fantasy world of the uh, so-called analysand or patient. There's, there's a lot of value in that and merit in it clinically, but I think acknowledging some historical narratives from a, you know from someone's origins really does matter. Yeah, and I guess if we've ever seen someone jump in the street at a car backfiring and then discovered they're a returned veteran of war, um, we've seen post-traumatic stress disorder playing out in the present from that past. That's right. That's right. Appreciate it. It is. That's a very neat and I think quite honest example. Now, in, in, even in that situation, let's look at just the immediacy of the return veteran of war. Even right there, there's, there's a lot of people now thinking about post-traumatic stress state as a sort of trauma of self. So let's say there are you know, a strong lad and he's come back from war but he's still startled and he can't sleep and he's, his usual sense of self is actually what's become really disturbed even mm. at the bodily level. Yep. No longer feeling fit and strong. Uh, the sort of myth of one's invulnerability has been completely smashed. And then even socially, you know, losing one's place in, say, the armed forces or falling away from professional engagement at some level, uh, perhaps turning to substances of addiction, family consequences. You can see it ramifies into a disturbance itself and that's, I guess, where the help is needed right through the whole way that one's living. Absolutely. I read in your paper you talk about the free will guided by conscience being a crowning achievement in human development and that it's easily toppled. You know what I, what I want to do, Amanda, I want to slightly change it. Sure. Now, I shouldn't do that on the run, but you, I'm sure you're grinning as I say that. Yeah. There's a fantastic writer called Ramachandran. I can't remember his first name. I can't remember the name of his book, frankly, as a speaker, but, but he came up with the notion a while ago of free want. And I think free will obviously appeals to me for its own little poetic usage in that quote you just gave, but, but really what Ramachandran gets at, which I reckon is so important clinically, what we really need is, is the freedom not to do things. So whichever way you cut a free will or free won't, it does amount to a space or zone within which there's a sense of choice. And that's the freedom. You know, that's, that's the capacity to weigh things up, um, for us to choose to be talking together. It, it, it's a kind of quality that really does bring life into best forms of living. When we're, just by and large, Dealing with, we can choose not to do things when they're just not right. 
we're mm. free to pursue our joys and, and fulfillment in all sorts of ways. And, you know, that, that's a, a pretty precious zone with a lot of conditions need to be set up for us to live like that. And we, we only realize those conditions when they're, you know, we're bloody well taken away, you know, when yeah. the conditions aren't what we've sort of become accustomed to in the stride of a certain level of free will and free want. Uh, do I understand correctly if I think of free won't take that next drink? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You and know, how not to do something. Yeah. That, that, see, what I'm getting at, it was on the tip of my tongue, I didn't go into it, but I'll, I'll dive into a bit of very brief, I guess, neurobiology, but these big frontal lobes sitting here behind our forest, right and left side, a lot of their operation, and I'm no scientist, but a lot that made use of the science when it suits me in a way, but a lot of the operation of our frontal lobes has to do with a kind of limit setting or what's known as executive function as a sort of shutting down on what otherwise might burst out in disorganized expressions of, say, impulse or urge. Right. So the big, lumpy frontal lobes, which probably define our species, they do a lot more things, but they also do work to kind of hold back on a lot of moment-to-moment impulsivity. So does your work help to correct processes in that lobe? Well, I suppose. sounds a bit strangely scientific, doesn't it? We, we, I, I think psychotherapy in its group and individual, individual form helps people, you know, modulate, set limits, reset what it is to sort of belong and manage. Some deeper stuff there too. I mean, in some of its expressions, psychoanalytic therapy can be quite radical. What, what I'm actually defining at the moment is a, a tendency for therapy work to help people conform or fit in or even, dare I say, shut down. But it, it, it's not really like that. There's also a sort of radical or revolutionary aspect where there's a freedom to question, um, to really set even more social and political tasks to find purpose. Wow. So you say that this conscience is easily toppled, or this free will, free won't. How was it toppled? Oh, look, I'm going to switch to another little fad of mine, and um, which I haven't written about, but I've certainly been reading. It's a bit of a fad in psychotherapy and neurobiology at the moment, and I think it's more than a fad. I think it's really valuable. The question of hemispheric lateralization. There's a big, yeah. big phrase. I'm glad I got it out. But the fact that <laughs> The left side and the right side is receiving a lot of attention last few years in psychotherapy and neurobiology writers. So the the toppling of the conscience, for the conscience to form and, and hold, we sort of need both sides of the brain to be integrated and, and coming along. I've, I've just been forming a view. I'm just going to try this out on you as the audience, Amanda, but kind of wondering about the way in which addictions seem to resemble the worst of the left brain. The left brain pursues drive, it seeks to compete and, and sort of gain power. It's a bit of a bossy kind of uh, tyrant. Ah. i paraphrasing some, some of the work by Ian McGilchrist in his book, The Master and His Emissary, where he, in a way, thoughtfully demonizes the left brain. It's more than demonizing, it's really deeply philosophical. But so in addiction, I've just been wondering about the way in which people get, to use a good old Freudian word, driven. And at our worst, when we're at our most driven, there's a generic comment about all of us. It's not usually a pretty sight. You know, we're, sometimes we're heedless. 
uh, will be driven in our purpose to sort of push others away out of the way. And it's, it's a kind of Jekyll and Hyde kind of approach, isn't it? Where, mm. um, drive takes over. There's a great phrase, I can't attribute it, I can't remember who said it, but a great phrase that addictions hijack motivation. Yeah, and so, that a lot of addicted people seem very aggressive, I guess. It's that it's driven into doing things that they wouldn't do in their right, literally their right mind, who's a ton on the right brain. Yeah. Is that getting towards what you talk about in terms of people being enslaved or helpless or lacking in awareness, that dissociation? is How's that linked? Uh, look, it's, again, it's another one of those such a valuable notion, dissociation. I take a pretty broad view of the dissociative process and most of us working with our patients at clients will see dementia, will see dissociation as a dimension. So there might be moments where we're all goofing off a little bit or it could be known as not an unhealthy reverie yep. in, in the therapy work where we're sort of you know, wondering what notions or even fantasies or imaginations are coming to our mind in the setting with the patient. That might even be a strangely almost quasi-dissociative state within the therapy. Mm-hmm. They're there but not there. Yep. Now, in trauma, um, who talks about it as the final bottom line defense? I think Alan Shaw might refer to it as the final bottom line defense of dissociation. I'm not sure if it's him, but where think of the child or even baby and adult being overwhelmed. Yep. In the ongoing moment-to-moment moment laying down of awareness or trust in continuity is just smashed. Clinically, it's often named, it's not all that common actually in interviewing patients directly, but when it happens, it's often named as, I just left the room, I was looking down on myself from the ceiling. That's quite an extreme form of dissociation. And that happens um, in trauma? It's a hallmark of, of um, a trauma experience. Are there different types of trauma or different ages or different degrees or severity that lead to maybe even different patterns of addictions? Yeah, look, good question. I don't think – there might be lots of papers on this. I haven't sort of delved into this particular puzzle directly. I imagine there, there are, but I don't know that it's really been teased out. I've got some broad sort of, I guess, experiences or notions of who might choose this or that kind of addiction, but I can't say that I've really teased it out. The, the other big dichotomy is, of course, big T trauma and little T trauma. I'm certainly open to a sceptical view. I think it's often healthy to say, well, everyone has their trauma experiences. Yeah, to some degree, you know, when in the old days of psychoanalysis, there were notions of birth trauma. So we've all been through the, the process of birth. But mm. um, really, I, I think... There's a pretty uh, valid sense of who becomes a patient. It, it usually does arise from, you know, severe trauma, capital T trauma. The broad ballparks are obviously abuse, which can be physical, sexual, emotional, or free. I do keep in mind attachment and it's failures, if I put it like that, just simple abandonment, emotional deprivation and neglect. There's often markers for that one that comes to mind. I see a lot of this. We often think of it as the parents, their parent or grown-up. You know, we, we often have to keep in mind sibling influences and particularly if there's a sibling some years older, then when there's been trauma inflicted by a sibling, itself is a marker for something that was done to the older sibling, of course, and 
and included in that a parental neglect or a, or a lack of supervision. Yeah, um, all related. It is. It is. And then, you know, let's say there's an episode of trauma, you know, sexual abuse, violence. If it's from outside the family and it is disclosed as a child is, you know, able to disclose it and it's dealt with, obviously a very different connotation from a trauma that can never be spoken and dealt with by the grown-up or a trauma arising or arising within the family in ways that have to, that are hushed up and that then also become, you know, reenacted or repeated again and again, like the relentless trauma that some children go through that they've never spoken about until adult life. And I suppose, you know, we could see in some ways addictions and then certainly the recovery phase is the opportunity to recover from that trauma. So it's an expression of the trauma? Can be. There was a, it's a very wonderful, simple notion by Kantian, um, K-H-A-N-T-Z-I-A-N, the self-medication hypothesis of addiction. Such a simple notion, so valuable, you know, addiction that is kind of self-soothing. Mm. So... What I'm wary of too is clinically it's an immediate puzzle I speak of like this that if we're going to remove the addiction, that's going to be felt to be a deprivation, something that's been self-medicating or self-soothing is being taken away. So you've got to bring someone on board with that to go back to the earlier idea of intervention. Someone's got to be given some possibility of soothing or support to replace what's been taken away. And the sooner the art of it really is to put the support in place right there at the very start of the possibility of recovery. For example, coming into a, you know, a rehabilitation recovery inpatient setting where the group forms around you. Because what that then gets at is, to use another, I think, important, um, what that gets at is the dependency needs, which is synonymous with the addiction, right? The dependency needs are now being met in some new and potentially sustainable and healthy ways. How do I mean? There's a community, there's a group support, there's a feeling of trust and safety. It's actually lived experience. Addictions, they'll, they'll carry this terrible, terrible, this sort of self-punitive idea that they've got to do it all on their own. Right. You know, I've just got to stop. It's just me. I'm weak. I can't stop. You know, it's my problem. And you're in this zone of awful kind of loneliness and solitude fighting the demon which is intra-psychic and we can actually say it's within the basal ganglia typically of the brain if you want to locate it as an addiction. Um, and, you know, the very system of that person sort of N equals one is fighting themselves to be free of an addiction. It's not an easy task. It's possible and there's all sorts of gutsy stories but what's really needed is addressing the dependency needs in some healthier ways so that people can find a way through the other side of the addiction. Interesting. So it's a healthy dependency provided by the hospital. And you're referring to the fact that you say the person with the addiction is not indulgent. Yeah, and these are things I've learned from the patients over the years. For an observer, it could be a family member or someone in the street or in a workplace, the observer who sees the person with the addiction problem, right, it's going to look like that person's self-indulgent. They don't get into work on time. They're always heading off to the pub at lunch. You know, they're going to look to use those sort of pejoratives. They're going to look hopeless or self-indulgent. Well, okay, that's the observer's point of view. 
but if you can get closer to the actual lived experience, what's typically going on, and I'll stick with the pub analogy, obviously getting at the alcohol problem, what's typically going on with the alcohol is it's being turned to relentlessly as a way where that person is trying to soothe their relentless self-criticism. So the observer might come at me with all sorts of criticisms and negative comments. Okay, guess what? The old cliche is the person with the alcohol problem, if I can say alcoholic, old-fashioned terms, they're going to be as down on themselves, but way more so than any observer. They're going to be calling themselves, I can't swear on your podcast, but all sorts of horrific, wild insults will be applied within their own attitudes to themselves. And, and here's the pain of it. The alcohol is an attempt to get out from under the self-criticism, but of course it then creates more problems. So really difficult downward spirals and, and loops and knots that are so hard to unravel in that one person. And if someone comes out and saying, look at you, you're hopeless, you're drinking all the time, you know, yeah. what you've got there is inflammation, like the, the red-hot, angry swelling of inflammation, that's medical student stuff. It's not typically going to find a way to heal. It's just more inflammation on the inflammation. But neither is it going to help if we sort of say, oh, well, you can do what you want. You know, yeah. you know here's, here's the pub. You can go and drink, drink yourself you know, into oblivion. It's a matter of setting the conditions of possibilities of limits so that the healing can happen. And there's clues along the way. Once the healing happens, someone can start to or open up about their self-criticism and self-loathing in pretty thoughtful ways, which brings us back to areas of shame, for want of a better way to put it, sort of disturbance at the very level of self. Mm. And as you said, I guess the person witnessing this who's involved or cares about the alcoholic saying how much they're suffering, seeing them, they're angry, you know, the money's running out or whatever it is that it's, please, let's help you. Yeah, look, it's, it's so powerful, it's exquisite trouble because then the alcoholic who may suffer from a very punitive, what used to be called superego, so their, their conscience is actually hot, harsh and punitive. Mm. When they see how much hurt they've done to child, spouse, parents, it, it's as though the old addiction doubles down on them. Like there's a hatred of how much harm they've done, there's risk of suicide and certainly further, if you like, seeking of oblivion. Why I might join it up just on, on this little note, Amanda, and this will really ring true. The way I might join it up is if someone can be got through the detox and then given a kind of experience of some work, not overdoing it, but people can really take to the notion of working through their recovery or working the steps because guess what? That then resets the conscience on a really basic day-to-day lived experience where we're allowed to have reward for effort. And if you, if you got through the, the, you know, rehab or even long-term rehab, you've made an effort and that's a deeper level of reward that creates the new possibilities of living without addiction. Fantastic. I've seen people go through recovery processes many times and it seems to be the people that have additional problems of personality disorder who don't seem to go through rehab just once. Is that your experience? Sure. The personality disorder idea. Let 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 me throw this little note in there. I'll see how it lands. Amanda is think about personality in itself as a stress response system. So that's laid down very early in life, along the lines of some doctory stuff. 
the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Now, the listeners may pick up at least on the word adrenal. So, yes, indeed, the stress response system has to do with adrenaline and cortisol. Slight large, a lot, lot else going on, but come back a step. So, the personality disorder is essentially, I guess, a disorder of stress response or a failure to be a bit heavy with the language, a failure to somehow modulate our stress responses and also a failure typically to have flexibility of stress responses. Healthy ecology, there's a pluralism. So a range of stress responses that might apply in different settings and a certain sort of doggedness to try out different approaches without giving up, Mm. including, what do you know, the stress response, good old-fashioned one of seeking help. Yeah. Um, But a certain form of personality disorder that's engaged in... The first word that comes to mind is projection. You know, the blame is all elsewhere. Yep. The stress response is to hunker down in an angry kind of fight against the world. It's tough going. There's a lot of pain in that. They can be helped, but yeah, often it takes a few times around the block to mm. create awareness. Actually, not not so much inculcating someone, oh, you're wrong with your stress response, but more let someone pick up on their patterns of adaptation, patterns of defence patterns of self-protection. Once that's been gotten to a level of some consciousness, then we've got some freedom within which to make choices to behave differently. Yep, absolutely. As you say, so much work involved when people do have additional problems um, to addiction. I love the fact that you talk about a 13th step in recovery, that being the transference process with the therapist. Would you explain that? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll... Again, take this a real rough and ready clinical approach. One-on-one therapy. It, it ought to be about emotional change. It should be about to be available to be supported, yes, and understood, and, and you know, there's empathy sitting with. But there is a certain feel that there'll be emotional change. Now, if you drop someone into a therapy setting one-on-one um, and it's not quite it's like the right time or there's not a readiness for it, the trouble is you can get to emotional change in the session. The person leaves the session out back out into the real world and they're still involved in a good old Kantian mode of self-medication in response to emotional threat. So the trouble is you, you, you may find someone spiraling back into their, obviously their relapse in the addiction in and through um, some one-on-one therapy. So what I'm getting at is pluralism again. You know, we need to have a whole variety of, I guess, containing and supporting approaches to help someone through their early recovery. I'm a big fan of the fellowship. I I just use the word fellowship because I think it's got a nice connotation of support rather than the rather bossy sounding 12 steps. But some versions of group approach for group therapy could be smart recovery, could be some of the other, I'll say, ACOA, you know, adult children of alcoholics or sex love addiction groups, um, including obviously as well as AA or NA. These these support groups are really important. Smart recovery takes a different approach. Whatever group approach can be applied can then be like somewhat more containing. And then when you add the magic ingredient of a sponsor, the other therapists, I mean, we all have different approaches, but I, I, I keep the pretty orthodox boundaries and limits. I don't give out an after-hours number, right? Yep. So, you know, but when you have someone bedded down in a fellowship with a sponsor that's got a real feeling of good practical fallbacks within that self-help group towards recovery, so that when emotional change is triggered, it needn't necessarily lead to a kind of catastrophic 
reaction or, or relapse. Now, for the 13th step, well, it's a bit of a judgment call. depends on how the therapy is practiced. If you've got a counselling level of support, that's always a value. But if you're going to, for want of a better way of putting it, sort of dive into some of the deeper underlying emotional pain, if that's done too soon in the recovery, it, it just can lead to the unfortunate outcomes of relapse. It's not necessarily causing it, but it's, it's a kind of ballpark of judgment that we have to make with patients, you know, share the dilemma yeah. and allow them to feel for what's going to really help them through. And when we use the word transference, what's your way of explaining it? Well, again, the past and the present. So the transference of past emotional attachment onto the present therapy. I've got an immediate reflection just from my work yesterday that I'm not sure if it will convey it all that well, but I'm sort of launched into it now. But the particular patient referred to a drawing he'd given his father. The drawing consisted of a gun and a, a, a glass of whiskey with some ice in it. The patient was very artistic. He, he did a less simple drawing on paper that his father loved as a gun and a you know, glass of whiskey. It sort of says it all. It just so happens that I was influenced in my teenage years by those sort of pulp fiction writers like Raymond, Raymond Chandler and Jatchel Hammett, some of the older listeners might have heard of those guys, but the Humphrey Bogart crime movies, right, and books. Now, I had a conceit, is actually the word for it, a sort of idea that I'm sitting here in my room like a private investigator with a, a cult revolver, which I've never even held in my life. I don't have one. It's not there. It's fantasy. <laughs> and a little hip glass of whiskey in my top drawer, like the tough guy shrink. Now, yeah. plenty of listeners might be turning off at this point, but... It, it was such a funny little juxtaposition where the patient's own expression of what he'd given to his father happened to be my own little fantasy that I carry in mind <laughs> of what's after all. It's a fantasy. And I actually named that. And it, it, I won't go into all the clinical details, but it may be that there was something of the transference there where I've become a vehicle for that fatherly, the attempt to reach out to what was actually a very rejecting father with his own troubles, right? Yeah. It's a, in some strange way of cosmic mystery, those little items or objects have presented themselves right here in my room for me to be allowed to be named, seen, and kind of held mm. as a sort of return to perhaps a more available father, which is a lot of what this fellow, I think, in the therapy is deriving in the work with me. Beautiful. Well, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to come across. <laughs> it happened yesterday. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> It's a transference note. It's, it's it is. Something. Some of it's obvious. Some of it's really obvious. Transference says, here I am seeking help. In what way am I going to be hurt? Yep. Here I am presenting with vulnerability. How will that be treated or not, looked after or not? Mm. Very basic stuff, generic stuff. Absolutely. I know you, you don't run the actual programs at South Pacific, but I believe they're based on inner child work and that there's a lot of creative processes that are used to help heal that inner child. I guess that's what we're talking about in transference, aren't we? Oh, for sure. Look, the blessings of one's childhood to have been able to be reasonably free emotionally. And there's so many problems where, you know, the... the and I'm, I'm, look, I'm not a hippie, you know me, Amanda. I've still got short hair. We haven't seen each other for a while, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Freedom without limits, but, but something of the possibility of an expression of your emotional existence. It was like, well, you can't be naughty. Mm. Such a powerful motif, this sense of what's called the parenticide child, right at the start of life, 
needing to be good and perfect or good and proper. Yeah. So, you know, another idea of this, and it, it sounds a bit pejorative, but it's actually technically a really useful term. I think we use it together. The idea of the false self, where someone has to constantly accommodate to everyone else's needs. Yep. And their own needs, wants, desires, in a way, are turned rotten. You know, they're turned into something that's felt to be disgusting or forbidden. It creates horrific conflicts, even more conflicts than we're given by the fact of needing to just manage life and get on with other people. It's such a deep experience of having to hide away, hide oneself from oneself. Mm. And one pretty key note to that is, oh, I can never be angry, or I, I, I can never have conflict with anyone. Or, you know, sorry to sound a bit theatrical, in a bit just to convey that's the sort of terrific inhibition that cause so much pain through life, yeah. and can often be the substrate for addiction. Wounded child becomes um, there's, there's adaptations around the wound, like um, use the medical picture. I guess a certain sort of inflammatory or or wound healing response, but then like a scar, it becomes restricting. Yep. And not like the adaptation is wrong, like it's nice to be nice to people or sometimes putting on a bit of an act is not a bad way to go in certain circumstances in life, right? Mm. The word is from the old ancient Greek word for mask. Yep. So we're given a certain quality of mask or persona with which to live. But when that scar has become so inhibiting that the development is restricted, that's the problem. Yeah. And, you know, we can never tell a client how long it's going to take or a patient to heal that scar. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? And it's, it's, I'm a bit of an enthusiast. You know, I, I guess putting the energy into the work that I know you do, I tend to make the mistake too often for such an old bloke where I, I get a glimpse of improvement. Yeah. <laughs> I'll kind of go, oh, great, you know. It, it's never that easy. Like, there'll be glimpses that are real value. A bit like a honeymoon phase sometimes is the feeling with um, sometimes the first time around in recovery. Yeah. But I've actually learned that we've got to convey a certain concern that how is the improvement going to be sustained? Yeah. You know, it's not as though things are often healed in a hurry. And if, if we can give a bit of a feeling that the recovery itself is not grueling, you know, it's a continuing to live. Mm. Because of, of the, I guess, settings and ways in which we can live as a freeing up, that then can keep people's morale up, keep people recovering and, and working in a, in a way that has its own, what is it, positive momentum, positive feedback. Yeah, and I guess, you know, I hear from people often that that fellowship of the continuation of going to something like AA helps with that continued morale. Look, I... Absolutely. I'm going to flip back to, as I said, the hemispheric lateralization. I, I just managed that phrase again. <laughs> I, I think there's some good evidence, without stretching it too far, that the morale and recovery is a kind of right brain phenomenon. Like, yep. I don't want to overdo this. this in a way, this, this reductionism is itself left brain. It's a funny <laughs> crossover. But, but right brain kicking in, you, you get a feel for it where people say, look, I'm, I'm, this time around I'm more engaged with the fellowship or yeah. feel more connected. Or I've, I've actually got a bit of a feel for something my own spirit or the spiritual feeling of living. You know, mm. That's actually a kind of re-emergence or coming back online of what may have been a long dormant sort of right brain modality. Is it fair to say for you know, on a more basic level, that the right brain is the human being and the left is more the human doing? Yeah, not a bad note to it. 
yeah, I, I certainly think that's part of it. I think the fancy word is heuristic. This right-left thing, I don't want to overdo it, but it, it, it sort of serves as a bit of a model with which to get some perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it came to me from a patient a couple of years ago now that told me that in recovery, he was a young bloke, you'd never think he was into singing. What well, you know, he, what he is, doesn't matter whether you think he is or not. <laughs> and he said to me, when he gets himself clean, he starts to love singing again. Ah, oh, yes. I started to think back to medical students. They said, oh, music. You know, yeah, that's, that's right brain. Yeah. Um, lyrics may not matter. It's the feel and, and the expression of, you know, from the heart that a, a singer knows. Ah, and that's what he's gaining access to again each time. And that then gives him the motivation with his love of music and singing to bloody well stay clean and sober. It's yeah. to build on that. And, and that's to the point that creativity is such a large part of recovery from addiction. Correct. Connection. Yeah. And, you know, creativity, a lot of it is connecting bits and pieces that might seem random, but, but letting things fall into place you can't force. But look, I'm, I'm a bit of a left brain guy. You know, I like sort of playing chess or mm. I, I certainly like in writing. But, you know, getting a feel for things, hearing something between the words, uh, the subtext, the tone and quality, that's what I actually teach the interview technique I teach the medical students is how to sort of throttle back, not bombard someone with questions, but throttle back and actually ask no questions and see what comes up. Yeah. That's the sort of application of that right brain motion clinical teaching. Mm. Yeah, hold the space. Yeah, exactly. I'd love to know more about the agency over helplessness of the traumatised child that you mentioned. Well, yeah, look. That idea has been around for a long time that, I don't know if it's Piaget, one of those child developmental thinkers, but when something bad happens to us early in life, we'll typically default to a thing at a deep level that it must be my fault. Yep. And I, you know, I think a lot of us keep in mind there's some sort of idea like, it's as though we prefer to feel it's my fault if I have agency rather than face the, you know, existential Error of helplessness. I'm talking quite young, but it can, I think this, this kind of default to it must be my fault can continue to quite a bit older in life, even 12, 13, you know, until we, we get a bit more awareness that wait on, stuff happens, it's not my fault, whose fault is it is not a bad question, and how do you understand how things came about? But earlier in life, ah, now if it's deeply felt to be my fault, that will actually do for an awful experience of what's called a basic fault. Actually, Valen came up with that term. The basic fault, a sense of one's innate or inherent badness, yeah. worthlessness. At a core personality level, is typically a marker of some pretty heavy experiences. Mm. Not just the, even, I think, awful attachment problems of abandonment. One of my patients was left by the parents and the older siblings in the care of other family members from the age of six weeks until two years of age. Oh, boy. We've all got those patients. I'm not trying to just, yeah, exactly. I say, oh, boy, but, you know, you know that kind yeah. of clinical patient again and again. And, and you've got this core gut-level struggle which seems to prevent the good, um, you know, that, and these sorts of patients are often in those areas where they're sort of greedy for all the blame. Um, mm. You get people that are just, both perfectionistic or martyrdom or always doing things for everyone else, saving the world type of um, you 
no uh, demand. And the trouble with that is it, it can be exploited by others, that's for sure, and it's so exhausting. Yeah. It, it's crushing burden. But at the core of it, it used to be called unconscious guilt. I think that gets at it reasonably accurately, you know. Mm. Just that depth of um, self-experience. Is it what I say simplistically, I think, to some people that it makes the child feel safer to think that they're at fault rather than the carer might be or the environment might be, as that's more scary? I think so. We're, I'm kind of wincing at a seat because I, I, what I mean is I think we're wondering. I, I, there's a lot of mysteries. It, it mm. reminds me of the mystery of reenactment. Like, yeah, we, we can lay down ideas as, you know, stress reactions get set down early and then repeated. Um, Memory retention, long-term memory may have some resonance here, other biochemical or neurobiological approaches. But, you know, then again, I just went, I say, well, it's a, it's a mystery. Like, why would someone take on all the guilt, you know? And but the awful problem is because a lot of this is lodged in the unconscious. Yeah. You might sit there, you might want to say, if it's just colloquial and friendship, you say, come on, it's not your fault, please, you know, in a way implying get over it, but it's not your fault. But you're sort of speaking all too consciously. It's, it's, it's not. It's as though that message isn't accepted as mm. deep, which is part of someone's personality. Something else I was really surprised to see was how many symptoms in common uh, addiction and trauma-related disorders have in your paper. Yeah, look, I'm glad you mentioned that because in the paper I'm attributing everything to all the other thinkers. I think. And, and you know, rightfully so, I've just gathered up, I've synthesised some other people's work really, but, but I, I think that sort of table or tabulation is something I'm quite pleased with. Um, to actually, yeah, line up those similarities. Um, yeah. And I think that may be something of use as a clinician to to kind of keep that overlap in mind in, in this experience of treating people with addiction. Bruce, what are those symptoms that addiction and trauma-related disorders share? I've sort of divided it up into various themes. So there's aspects of the desire or compulsion itself where with trauma early in life and addiction, you get confusion about your body, you can get confusion around pleasure and pain, you can get it both emotionally and bodily, you can get a kind of blurring of excitement and anxiety. In trauma and in addiction and in our human cells, of course, there's a sort of tension release arc, you know, a build-up of tension yep. and excitement of an appetitive drive or appetite drive, and then it's released once it's gratified. In trauma, I think it's really important that you find a loss of fun or spontaneity or play. That's actually a hallmark of addiction. Someone in the group of an addiction, they're not having fun, they've lost, they've lost spontaneity and playfulness. In trauma, one of the awful experiences for a traumatised child in the sexual abuse or violence is that they've been treated as a thing. Likewise, in addiction, this person becomes almost self-avowedly, they'll see themselves as a thing. Yep. And another really important connotation or similarity between trauma and addiction is secrecy and shame. Often there's secrecy around trauma and shame in the child. Mm. This in addiction is often shame and secrecy in the adult in their addiction. Another area of overlap is within aspects of conscience. So in trauma, um, itself is a sort of threat to the integrity of self, but it's disintegrated. Conscience is an attempt to integrate and hold together. 
Likewise, in addiction, as we've already said, there's a threat to the integrity of self disintegration. And in trauma, there's often, as we just mentioned, a predominance of blame and fault and guilt. Likewise, in addiction. And then the other area is actually touched on previously aspect of dissociation. So in trauma, there's dissociative connotations to do with helplessness. Likewise, in addiction, there's confusion, there's memory disturbance. It works as a sort of autopilot state. Each of those features can sort of arise in both early trauma and in later addiction. Just think of simple states and addiction of intoxication and the memory disturbances that can ensue from that. So that that was a kind of a meditation, I guess. I'm trying to pick up on what I've seen in, in so many patients over the years and, and how those features do seem to overlap between the two trauma and addiction states. Yeah, they really do overlap, and it's really, as you say, like the shadow of the trauma in the in the addiction. That's it. Yeah, that that seems to capture it. Yeah, it does. You see, some people that you know, skeptical approaches, they they might say, "Oh, well, this is just making excuses." It's not really. It's kind of more interesting than that. And you know, who's going to be saying, "I don't want to make excuses." Often, it's the patient with the addiction. Yep. <laughs> a sort of fight against understanding and. And, and see it as a, again a, a sort of indulgence. But if you can show and join the link thoughtfully, and you know you take a history and you think it through with someone, you can kind of allow them to begin to appreciate just how the origins of the addiction are often found in childhood. Too right. I think taking that interested and interesting kind of approach can cut through the defence mechanism when you put it that, like that to a patient. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But always be aware, another phrase that will be used several times a day, be aware how, how sneaky the addiction problem is. Mm. You know, that, that's tricky stuff. Sometimes in early recovery, it's not a bad thing to almost see the addiction as a separable, sneaky kind of foe, you know. Yep. I'm not a big fan of that kind that's being taken too far because it can be a bit of a split in the personality or in a way sort of weakening the, the whole person. But certainly early on, that, that kind of language can be pretty helpful, I think. And what about genetic predisposition? Well, you've come to the wrong place. (laughs) (laughs) I do take a family history. When I hear about this or that parent, grandparent with addiction, um, I'll be thinking uh, nurture more than nature. Now, we all turn to the references or authorities that we like. So in Gabor Mate's book, which is a wonderful book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, in the appendix, he rips into the kind of gold standard identical twin studies that purport to show uh, genetic preponderances in addiction. I can go into more details, but he basically points out that, wait on, there's been a lot of nurture influences in the so-called gold standard twin studies where identical twins have often been raised together for several months or even longer in the first year or so of life before they've been separated. So... When there's an attempt to say, oh, look, these twins were raised separately and they're both turned out to be, you know, addicts with people with addiction, oh, it must be genetic. No, he says they received similar early stresses in so many cases, even into uterine stresses. Yep. So maybe just suits me because I, <laughs> I guess I think psychologically, you know, and yep. I work in psychological approaches and biology, but I don't want to make out that biology doesn't matter. Yeah. So much evidence 
saw the neuro development being profoundly influenced intrauterine and in the first weeks, months and years of life. Yep. But epigenetics is the other buzzword for how genetics really gives way to a phenotype or a formed person at a tremendous change and flux in, in early life. Well, now that you say this, what are the tips or pearls of advice you'd give adults trying to nurture children? Oh, look, pretty basic stuff. I'll show my age, but my experience as a little person where my parents were pretty busy and kind of doing their own thing and I think they related with each other quite a bit, so uh, believe it or not, it's come at it from a very, very broad perspective. I think, you know, if, if we set the conditions well enough and almost allow the loving stuff to be taken for granted along with the other negative stuff that we've all got, you know, frustrations, difficulties and being oneself, then, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of allowing for a lot of other struggles to be minimised in the way I'm expressing it, but a bit muddling through as a parent. But to get more specific, right, the first thing I think about, maybe just my latest sort of reading really, is the profound importance of setting good sleep routines. Hmm. Really basic. Look at attention deficit disorder. If you haven't had a good night's sleep and you're a little six or seven-year-old kid, you're going to be restless, irritable, you won't concentrate, you won't pay attention. Now, what's related these days to sleep disturbances? Technology, screen time. The reference I'm talking about with reference to sleep is a great book by Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep, and he suggests that up to half of the so-called ADHD diagnoses in North America, the United States, are primary sleep problems, wow. primary insomnia problems. So it's an awful, awful loop clinically where a little kid not had enough sleep and you're prescribing them a stimulant like Ritalin or Dexamphetamine, yeah. uh, methylphenidate or Dexamphetamine as a stimulant, and what they really need is sleep. What I'm getting at there in terms of parenting, and I've been a parent, you know, I guess I still am, just the routines around good habits, good conditions, setting limits. I think I'm going to say something might reveal more about me than I need to, but I think we've got to be reasonably robust. Like We've got to allow some anger. It's the problem these days, it's maybe always been a problem with our species, and I've written on this in a paper called On the Crisis of Conscience, which refers to the murderous feelings between a, a father being Abraham and the son Isaac. You know, now, this stuff is the ancient patriarchal nonsense for some people, but I think to allow our, our angry bits to be felt and, and known about within limits, yep. I think that's not unhealthy if I'm sort of like that. I've got a certain tone, you know, now look here, son, you know, and often you find people with real addiction and early trauma have never had that workable expression of what really amounts to assertiveness, like yeah. a functional kind of boundary anger within which to feel actually guided. I hope I'm not ranting as I speak like that. No, no, very interesting. So when people think of addiction, they think of substance, gambling and sex. But there are, of course, these less obvious addictions such as social media, fear of missing out, gaming and devices that can be very destructive. Are you seeing yeah. an increase in these types of addictions? Oh, for sure. Technology is fascinating. It, it does form who we are. When there's a new technology, it does become an object of fascination and perhaps addiction. I think back in the 1800s, there were fears that I think perhaps the young women would be addicted to these newfangled things called novels. <laughs> Don't read novels, they'll pollute your mind. Novels are bad. You can imagine staying up late at night reading a novel would have been seen as a sinful or, or wrong act. So it's, it's as though I guess we need to find our way through and accommodate these new objects of fascination in ways that allow enough of life to, to carry on. 
is technology a net evil or net gain? Well, you know, we have to say it's a net gain in terms of just the ease of our lives. But everything can be turned into more perverse or corrupted purposes. And do you feel the pandemic has contributed to an increase in addiction or do you think there's just an increase in reporting and admissions? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm no expert on any of those big epidemiological questions. I suspect, I guess I've read in the press, you know, there's more alcohol being consumed. It's tricky. It's certainly, you know, those restrictions interstate are really tough going. I, I guess we'll find out. I, I, my broader take on the, the pandemic is I, I think it's like a bit of a return to how our species has long existed throughout its history with a burden of infectious diseases. We've been in the West particularly sort of blissfully freed up from that for the last 60 or 80 years since the antibiotics. So it's like a return to the tuberculosis, cholera, diphtheria, polio, you know. Mm. The burden of infectious diseases has always been around and it's now, just in our lifetime, it's come crashing back at us. Yeah, so true. So Bruce, you say the field of addiction and trauma has many dilemmas and controversies. What are these? One that comes to mind straight up is the question of addiction as a so-called medical disease. Uh, there's a really good book by Mark Lewis called The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not the Disease. He's, it's a fairly polemic view, but really worth reading. One dilemma that I, again, you know what, I, what I've learned to do over the years is share the dilemma. Typically when the patient may say to you, well, you know, have I got a disease? You can say, well, I'm not sure. What do you think? It sounds a bit trite, but you can open up some interesting puzzles and meaning. What would it mean to have it as a disease or what would it mean for it not to be a disease? Look, in terms of trauma, we sort of hinted at this earlier on. There can be the skeptic's view of, oh, well, we've all gone through something negative. But I think there's qualitative differences when the trauma has been so destructive. Yeah. You know, I, I think we do have a feel, with, I'm sure there's measures of it, the ACE score, Adverse Childhood Experiences score. They look at a whole lot of things, none of which in isolation would necessarily mean trauma, like parental divorce, or this is a reference to a parent being in prison, I can't remember the 10 questions, but sometimes it's like a cumulative effect. Yep. And then of course there's the high end, I'll use pretty vivid language, but tissue damage or bodily damage or you know sexual connotations of damage and abuse. Where you'd have to do, you, that's where the law is really good. You know, the law will say, look, that's a crime. Yeah. That's, the law gets that right. So there's some areas in, in amongst it all where there might be some vague puzzles, but I, I think as clinicians, we'll get a feel for what we're getting at with, the, with serious trauma, what we're getting at with someone really in an addiction. The addiction itself, there may be a gradation between a habit or harmful drinking they talk about a compulsion that's a little bit out of control and then an addiction. And again, I'm, I'm not a real categorical thinker. I'll tend to sort of follow that dimension with this or that person and see in what way it impairs function as a, as a clue to the state of you know, concern or um, an area where they really need help. And that approach that you're explaining really seems to engage, I imagine, in the patient, the right hemisphere more than the left. Yeah, but look, here's another point I want to make too, and it's interesting, I'll sort of leave it to last. There's dilemmas and controversies around management. Like I said, no one's got all the answers. There's a handful of so-called anti-craving medications, particularly for alcohol and other drugs. There's, uh, for example, narcotic replacement treatments. But I think, for example, I don't need to name or I can, buprenorphine, that are really valuable. Methadone's got its place as well sometimes. 
I'm not a big fan of the stimulant replacement sort of treatment, but they may have a place for some people. So there's some controversies there where, particularly too, in early recovery, I'm not a big fan of adding an antidepressant. There's, a, there's some good science that early recovery, you long, pretty well across the board or generically, early recovery entails a period of what's called anhedonia, where there's a sheer loss of the capacity for pleasure. You could probably measure it if you could get down into the little dopamine between the nerve cells. Mm. Now, that will pass. People take time to get through that. It can be a few weeks. But I'm not a big fan of adding an antidepressant. I think that's sometimes a mistake and can add a little bit of confusion where someone might begin to feel better and get their energy back. And that may well have happened anyway rather than being attributable to this or that medication. Yeah, exactly. There. And look, in terms of my usual practice with patients that are already on medications, I'll leave them on. No way saying, you know, that you're going to have to stop everything. But there's certain medications that I'm really wary of in early recovery. Obviously, the benzodiazepines are quite prominent as a concern. I am, I do find myself quite concerned with people on the stimulant medications for their, let's say, adult ADHD diagnosis. I tend to, can I say, bring that into question, thoughtfully, I hope. But there's, you can hear in my voice, there's dilemmas and controversies throughout those sort of management approaches. Yeah. So people who suspect they might have an addiction or a trauma, what advice would you give those people? Well, I guess check in with yourself first of all. If you find that whatever it is you're doing is compulsive, and this is actually quite an interesting point you can get at subjectively, and it could include your sexual behaviour or gambling problems. If what you're doing no longer brings pleasure, it might sound strange, but oh, the sex is pleasure. No, no. When people are gambling where you think it's enjoyable, no, you, you can get into points pretty rapidly in an addiction direction or dimension where the pleasure's been leached out of the act and it's become a kind of uh, compulsive behaviour which doesn't make you smile and certainly doesn't make you feel good about yourself, either in the act itself or immediately after, but there's residues of shame and guilt and negativity. Now, if that's kind of beginning to take over, then the trouble is, you know, we are seeking pleasure and happiness and joy in life. Life can start to look pretty bleak. So I guess that might be where you might talk to a GP in the first instance and start to open up to some of these struggles. And what about people who are worried about a teenager or, or an adult, someone that they care about? Yeah, it's, it's got to be a conversation, doesn't it? Sometimes the conversation obviously may amount to a confrontation, but you know we've, we've got to find ways within which we can get real enough to say, you know, what's going on? I'm really concerned. You don't seem to be travelling well. You haven't been turning up in this or that role or responsibility, maybe school or work or at a relationship level. There's been a retreat from engagement with other people. I'm concerned. Can you please let me know what's going on? I'll go from that note of concern to maybe a, a bit more of a rugged position. I, I know it's not easy, but you know, if someone's spending on their addiction and it's a parent with a teenager, it might be important to set up some way of cutting off the money supply. Sounds pretty bossy, doesn't it, when we've been emphasising psychological approaches, but there's a bit of a saying, until you can actually put a hold or stop to the behaviour, the underlying emotional and psychological needs can't actually get met. Makes sense. So I guess people can access your paper on addiction as trauma's shadow via ResearchGate. Where, yeah. where can they get your book? Oh, good question. It's called A Break in the Wall. You can Google it. You can Google my name, 
on Amazon. You can get it in Kindle or paperback form. I've always got a secret stash of novels. I handed some out the other day. I sold them, I should say, to a, a book club down the road from the hospital in Kirkville. So, you know, endless self-promotion, shameless as well. But I'm still waiting for Robert De Niro to return my call because I think he's got a role in the movie. Fantastic. So if people want to reach you, they can call you at your rooms on 02 for Sydney, 8065-8377. That's it. Bruce, it's been a great pleasure and extremely interesting listening and talking with you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Amanda. It's been a really good conversation. It's reminded me of how good it's always been to chat with you too. Me too. Must do again soon. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes.